spend tonight and tomorrow night in the first chapter of Luke's gospel. Um, certain aspects of the first chapter of Luke's gospel. And uh, I just want to acknowledge some of the scholars that I've used to help uh, put my thoughts together. Elizabeth Johnson, a great theologian out of Fordham University. Her wonderful book called Truly Our Sister is uh, a magnificent theology of Mary, and it's Mary's Magnificat we'll be talking about tonight. Also, Raymond Brown, God rest him, wonderful uh, priest, uh, Sulpician, a scripture scholar. I had the privilege of being on the same faculty with Ray at the end, toward the end of his life. Just a consummate gentleman. He wrote uh, uh, an extraordinarily scholarly work on the infancy narratives, uh, particularly of Luke and the Jerome biblical commentary. You know, just a little personal note about St. Luke. Um, when I was a transitional deacon, before I became a priest, I really found uh, a great deal of gratitude for Luke. When I, would, when I would meet people who'd been away from the church for a long time and who would say, I don't know where to start, or someone who was inquiring about coming into the church and wanting to learn about uh, Christianity and specifically Catholicism, I'd always say, let's go to Luke. Let's go to Luke, because he wrote it for you. He wrote it for Gentiles. He wrote it for us. And I always found that Luke never failed. He, he would give a wonderfully systematic and blessed uh, introduction to Jesus and introduction to why it was important to know Jesus. You, you know that... Um, that little phrase, it's in the Acts of the Apostles and in the uh, first of Luke's Gospel. He talks about Theophilus. You know, in my previous work, Theophilus, as if it's a person he's writing to. And it may be, but there's another way to think about Theophilus, and I prefer the second version, and it's this. Theophilus, theo, theos in Greek means God. Philios is lover. So, Theophilus means lover of God. And I see Luke as addressing that Acts and his gospel and his Acts of the Apostles to us, to you personally and individually, to you, lover of God. I've written this systematic description of Jesus' life. One of my colleagues in the seminary faculty where I teach, he teaches homiletics. He should get commando pay for that. You know, teaching brand new rookies, you know, how to preach. It's, uh, every once in a while, we'll hear bellowing down the hall, that's not a homily. You know, it's just like, they go, oh no, one more kid's in trouble, you know. But he gives them a rule of thumb that I think is a great rule of thumb. Uh, it, uh, it helps me as a preacher too. And the rule of thumb is this, before you preach, answer two questions. What? And so what? Not bad, huh? What do you got to say? And so what? What difference does it make to the people? Is it going to help them go more deeply into the, the Word of God? So I thank Luke for that. Luke was uh, 
Luke was a Hellenistic uh, native of Antioch in Syria. There's some wondering, we don't know, we won't know till the kingdom of God, of whether he maybe was a Hellenistic Jew, it's possible, Hellenistic meaning Greek, or maybe he just was well-educated because he wrote his gospel and the Acts for an educated Greek community. In fact, the, the best sense of the fathers of the church was Luke wrote his gospel and Acts of the Apostles to be read in the church houses and people gathering for Eucharist together, that they would be steeped in the ways of Jesus. Uh, Paul calls him a doctor, a physician. He was, he's mentioned in Paul's letter to the Colossians, that's where he calls him a doctor. But he, he also mentions Luke uh, as his companion in uh, his letter to Philemon and in the second letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. So the second half of the Acts of the Apostles are the journeys of St. Paul, and he switches from uh, uh, the third person to the first person, we. So he was a companion of Paul on many of his journeys. He, however, was not uh, killed as Paul was in Rome. Uh, uh, Luke reputedly, through the fathers of the church, lived till about age 84. So God bless him. There are four canticles or songs, if you will, in Luke's, in Luke's gospel. Uh, the first is uh, the Magnificat, which we're going to look at tonight. That's Mary's song. Magnificat is the first Latin word of her song, uh, which means uh, uh, I, I magnify or my soul magnifies uh, uh, God. The second one is Zachariah's song, which is the Benedictus. That comes tomorrow night. The third one is the Gloria that we are very familiar with, uh, the first part of which was on the uh, the lips of the angels. And the fourth little canticle is uh, that of Simeon, yeah, when Jesus was presented in the temple. And just a quick word about that tomorrow night. So tonight, Mary's Magnificat. And through Kelly's great kindness, we'll eventually have it on the wall up there a uh, little, little later into the talk and be able to pray it together, uh, maybe twice. You remember the visitation of Mary to her cousin Elizabeth. The, the actual Gospel of Luke starts, uh, the, the, the first ent entity presented is actually about Zechariah, our topic of tomorrow night. He's telling Zechariah, a priest, that uh, his uh, elderly wife Elizabeth is going to conceive and bear a son. It's the angel Gabriel making this announcement to Zechariah. And Zechariah questions that. And Gabriel then tells him that because you didn't believe my words, I who stand before God, you didn't believe my words, you will be struck dumb until these words are fulfilled. So that Zechariah is then speechless until we meet him again. Uh, it's always been curious to me. Zachariah asked a question, and he got slapped with being mute. 
Mary asked Gabriel a question and got blessed. <laughs> so, the usually patriarchal uh, scriptures somehow slip in that regard, I think. Uh, but when, uh, after Gabriel makes his announcement to Mary, and Mary asks her question, how can this be, since I'm a virgin, since I, I know not man, uh, and Gabriel answers her question, that the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, and the child to be born of you will be called the blessed of God. Then Gabriel tells Mary about her cousin Elizabeth, who is in her uh, sixth month of pregnancy in her old age. And after that, Mary sets out for the hill country to go to the house of Elizabeth and Zechariah to be with her cousin. And that's where we, and that's the context in which the Magnificat takes place. Her great, it's a great song of liberation. Mary's song is a song of liberation on four levels. It's a song of liberation personally for her. Also socially. She's going to have some pretty important things to say about how society functions. Thirdly, there's a deep moral dimension to her song of liberation relative to the poor. And then fourthly, there's very direct uh, economic liberation foretold by Mary in her song. She stands as the singer of justice as the messianic age is beginning to open up with the birth of her son. She's the one who sings this song of justice. Um, and you know, in, in a lot of the, the pious renderings of Mary, uh, which are part of our rich tradition as Catholics, uh, going back you know, deep into uh, the millennia, you know, all these wonderful titles that have been given to Mary, uh, they have emphasized so much her being the virgin mother of God, and rightly so, and God bless her for that. But one of the things that has been dimmed over these centuries in talking about Mary is her prophetic dimension. On the weekend uh, at the Masses, we talked about those two huge prophets, Jeremiah and Jesus of Nazareth, son of God. Uh, we recognize, you know, we could probably name many of the prophets. You know, between us, we'd get them all. You know, if you, if you were asked to name the prophets of the Old Testament or, or the prophets of the Scripture, you know, Isaiah would come, Jeremiah would come, Habakkuk maybe, if you're, if you're on a windy day, you might get Habakkuk or uh, Hosea or Amos, or, you know, any of these, Dan, the, the prophets that emerge. Uh, I don't ever hear Mary being referred to as a prophet, let alone Elizabeth but both of them are. A prophet in the scriptural sense is not a fortune teller or a teller of the future. A prophet is one who speaks with authority from God. That's what a prophet is. And Miriam of Nazareth is a prophet as well. We'll see how that unfolds uh, this evening. This encounter between Elizabeth and Mary is 
I think, just a, a wonderful encounter of grace. And as often as I have read it and prayed about it, I often feel like I'm eavesdropping, you know, with these two wonderful women who are ministering to each other. But it's an extraordinary uh, connection. They're sharing joy together in God's revolution. Things are never going to be the same when these two women give birth to their babies, one the precursor, the other the savior of the world. Between the two of them, they, they rocked Judaism on its ear and have changed the world ever since. Mary had already said her yes to God and God's plan, God's initiating the reign of God by her yes to the angel Gabriel's invitation. In the Latin, it says, fiat voluntas tua. Mary saying to God, your will be done. Be it done unto me according to your will. Fiat. It's already there. But what's, what's really, uh, to me, scripturally of interest here is that very unusually, there's a quieting of the male voice. That doesn't happen in Scripture. Very few exceptions to that. The Scriptures come from a very patriarchal culture. Conveniently, Zechariah has been silenced. He's silenced through her whole pregnancy. She's got a lot of time to reflect. And Mary comes for three months. This is a coffee clatch for women. There's no male voice present. It's just very interesting in the scriptures. Remember, Luke is a Greek, and women's position in Greece was not the same as women's position in Judaism and in Israel. In Greece, there was equality, there was authority, there was, uh, with some real exceptions in Judaism, we'll mention a couple of them a little later, but uh, women were their own person in the Hellenistic world. I love it that Luke gives us that spin of these two pregnant prophets present to each other. One is praising the other, Elizabeth to Mary, and both are praising God. The women themselves, and this is a power, powerful thing, that precedes the Magnificat, these two women themselves literally embody the mercy that they will proclaim. Both John the Baptizer and especially Jesus of Nazareth announce the mercy of God in deeply personal ways. These two women already literally and flesh embody the mercy that they proclaim prophetically. They're crying out together in joy, but also in mourning and in hope for the future. It's the complete opposite of the humble handmaid of the Lord that is often presented in reflections on Mary through the centuries. Elizabeth, as an elderly woman, 
stands strong in the Hebrew Scriptures' barren matriarch tradition. That's something that, um, that is a, a technique in the Scripture to present God's initiative and God's own work. There are several prominent women in the history of Judaism who fit into that barren matriarch tradition. The first and probably preeminent would be uh, Sarah, the wife of Abraham, the first wife of Abraham. I mean, I mean first in terms of uh, like the hierarchy. You know, on a baseball team, you got the number two shortstop, number three shortstop. They had that for wives in Judaism, and Sarah was the first among the wives of Abraham, but she had no children, and that brought great shame upon her. They, that was seen as being out of God's favor. When her maid, Hagar, uh, had a son, Ishmael, by Abraham, that was a deep shame for Sarah. And Sarah, in fact, you know, banished her to, to the desert. Ishmael, by the way, becomes the father of Islam. But Sarah, as that barren matriarch, number one, Rebecca, who was the wife of Isaac, uh, had no children until God intervened, and she became the wife, the mother of uh, Esau and uh, Jacob. Rachel, who was Jacob's wife, uh, was also barren until she became, by God's intervention, the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. And Hannah, Hannah was the wife of Elkanon and was barren and distraught by that and prayed deeply to God for uh, being blessed with a child, which in Judaism meant being blessed first with a son. Um, and she becomes the mother of Samuel. I guess uh, the message of Hannah in some ways is be careful what you pray for because she also became the mother of five others uh, after that. But uh, something that to this day, you know, I, uh, I just stand humbly in front of and completely don't understand is how Hannah was so bereft at her lack of having had a child that when her child is born and she weans Samuel, she gives him to the temple. I don't mean for an, over, an overnight or a weekend. She gives him to the, to the temple to be raised. I thought, yeah, that's just a mystery to me. Uh, but Hannah also uh, sings a beautiful song and a song of gratitude to God, which in many ways echoes the song that Luke puts on the lips of Mary. Mary's Magnificat is the longest speech on female lips in the whole of the New Testament. But Elizabeth is in that tradition and, and she says it this way in Luke's Gospel. So the Lord has done for me. In other words, God has done for her what God had done for those other matriarchs that preceded her. And so the Lord has done for me. Mary will say something very similar to that. And, and for her, she's saying that she is a loved and valued person by God's having blessed her with her pregnancy.
You know, Luke is, Luke is very, very uh, uh, fond of describing Mary. John doesn't even give her a name. The name Mary doesn't show up in John's gospel at all. He always calls her the mother of Jesus. But Luke gives her her name, which is Miriam. And he makes it very clear that as you see the 11 times that Miriam appears in the scriptures, he most always adds to that, and she pondered these things in her heart. She tossed them around in her heart. She's a reflector. She's a thinker. She thinks her way through uh, what's happening to her. And you get a sense, too, of this, this sense of uh, that Elizabeth as well pondered things because of the grace in her own life and her recognition of that grace, she could also recognize the grace in another's life. You can ask any priest this. They'll tell you that same experience. Presiding at the Sacrament of Reconciliation is one of the most humbling things imaginable because constantly you're put face to face with the grace of God working in the heart of another and that also can quicken and awaken within the presbyter the need for God's grace but also the recognition of God's grace in one's own life. But Elizabeth recognizes the grace in Mary. And he, she blesses her in three ways. Elizabeth says this to Mary. These are words that are very familiar to you, probably among the first prayers you ever learned. She says, blessed are you among women. Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And blessed is she who believed that the words of the Lord to her would be fulfilled. Those are three marvelous blessings that Elizabeth gives to Mary. Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Blessed is she who believed that the words of the Lord would be fulfilled to her. Luke just perfunctorily tells us that Mary stays for the last trimester. Mary stays for three months before she returns. The support that they share with each other literally enables them to mother the next generation of prophets. I love thinking about these women as pregnant prophets. And their support for each other allows that to take place. You know, there's, there's been a movement that's been going on in Scripture for at least 30, Scripture studies for at least 30 years that I'm aware of, uh, called a feminist hermeneutic. It's, it's a, in our generation, it's a relatively new phenomenon within Scripture studies. The feminist hermeneutic Hermeneutic sounds like something you could order at Chipotle or something, you know. But the hermeneutic means a, a lens, a way of, of looking at the texts, of looking at the experience. And a feminist hermeneutic is an attempt to recapture the voices of women, the experience of women in the scriptural stories. And since very often 
these are products of patriarchal times, the voices of women and the experience of women very often has been suppressed. But it's accessible through a variety of academic techniques, which we won't go into here, but just to, just to name a few, some of the linguistic ways things are presented, uh, archaeological digs. Boy, we know a lot about the life of Miriam of Nazareth simply from the archaeology of Nazareth, what life was like for a first-century Palestinian poor woman. And also anthropological studies, extra-biblical studies, lots of ways, that, wonderful ways. In Africa, they're called womanist theologies. Womanist theologies. They're also coming out of Central America, trying to recapture the experience of women in the Scripture. Luke gives us straight up the experience of two women beloved of God and blessed extraordinarily by God, naming the graces in each other's lives. It's really quite extraordinary, really quite a marvelous gift. Mary's song, the Magnificat, by the way, this, uh, three of the four canticles are recited every day in the church's prayers. The church's, they're, they're, when we say the word liturgy, uh, at St. Patrick's, like, I'm sure the first thing that comes to your mind is our marvelous and wonderful Sunday celebrations, right? That's liturgy with an attitude. It's, <laughs> if you can't pray here, you're in serious trouble because every, every gift of the community is made available to help you do that. But the liturgy of the church, which means the public work of the church of praise of God, really is twofold. One is the Mass. The second is the Divine Office. That's also the liturgy of the church. It's the public prayer of the church, which is recited in monasteries and by holy women and men, uh, clergy and religious, on a daily basis. And every day, three of Luke's four canticles are prayed. The Benedictus, Zachariah's prayer at morning prayer, the Canticle of Mary, the Magnificat at evening prayer every day, and at night prayer, which is called Compline, Simeon's little canticle is recited as well. So it's, it's like these are, these are really important dimensions in the, in the church here. Mary's song stands in a long Jewish tradition of female singers who also sang dangerous songs. We'll see how dangerous the Magnificat is in just a little while. It's a dangerous song. She was a dangerous woman. She's dangerous to herself and to others. She's dangerous because she could have been stoned to death for that pregnancy outside of her marriage. It was only by God's benevolent interference in Joseph's sleep that he decided to quietly divorce her. By right, he could have stoned her to death. She's also a dangerous woman in what she has to say in the Magnificat. But it's a long tradition in Judaism. I'm just going to give you four examples 
of that outside of uh, Miriam of Nazareth. The first one is Miriam, who was the older sister of Moses and of his brother Aaron. She also was a prophet. And Miriam does a dance and sings a song in Exodus 15, celebrating the destruction of the Pharaoh, uh, the Pharaoh's chariots and charioteers in the Reed Sea, or Red Sea if you're a purist. But Miriam sings that bold song of deliverance of God. Deborah, Deborah comes from the 12th century BC. This is really deep in the tradition of Judaism. Deborah is the only female judge in the scriptures. She's also a warrior. You know, in the parish where I am in Salem, we've had for a long time, the Chief Justice of the Oregon Supreme Court is one of our parishioners. And he's as kind and gentle and compassionate a soul as you could imagine. Deborah, as a judge, was also a warrior. You don't want to mess with a judge anyway. You really didn't want to mess with Deborah. Deborah and another woman called Jael uh, really were the ones who helped defeat the Canaanites against the tribes of Israel. And Deborah sings a song of deliverance. Hannah, whom we've already met, the mother of Samuel, sings that gorgeous song on which Mary's is patterned as well. That's in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And Judith, finally. Uh, Judith isn't a, isn't a book that's accepted in the uh, Jewish canon of Scripture or therefore in the Protestant canon. That's the only difference between the Protestant Bible and the Catholic Bible. The Jewish or the Protestant uh, Bibles accept what's in the Jewish canon, uh, meaning the, the rule of what books are acceptable uh, and the books that are excluded are books that appeared in Greek. Those are not part of either the Protestant or Jewish canon. And uh, Judith's is one of those that was written in Greek. But uh, this was a, a, a daring and beautiful widow who chastised her countrymen for uh, not believing that God would deliver them from their enemies. At any rate, Mary's song is in that tradition. And as, as politically sensitive as any of those. In just a moment, uh, Kelly will put, them on the, put it on the wall for us to be able to pray our way through it once. Uh, but when we do that, there'll be two main stanzas for Mary's song. The first one praises God's divine mercy to her. She's praising God for being good to her. And the second reflects the Holy One's victorious deeds for the oppressed community of all ages, any community that is oppressed. And I think as we pray it, it's important for us to remember that Mary herself was a member of an oppressed community. Oppressed by the Romans for sure, but also oppressed as poor Palestinians. Uh, she's also a woman, so she's doubly oppressed in the culture. So, Kelly, can we uh, thank you? Please join me in uh, praying the Magnificat. It'll take seven or so stanzas, Kelly tells me. 
And remember, Magnificat means, uh, it's Magnificat anima mea domini. My soul magnifies the Lord. Okay. Together, please. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on his handmaid. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For the one who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise made to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. My soul magnifies the Lord. In that great Deuteronomic tradition, you know, like love God with all your whole heart, all your soul, all your being, all yourself, all your strength. That's what Mary's praying here. My whole being magnifies the Lord. In other words, testifies to the greatness of the Lord. Uh, Magnificare shows forth the greatness of the Lord. My being shows forth the greatness of the Lord. You know, every night when I pray this psalm, I always get caught on that line. I don't know if you do, but I do. My being proclaims the greatness of the Lord. And I, kept, I catch myself saying, does my being do that? And specifically always, did it do it today? Did my being show the greatness of the Lord by how I am with my brothers and sisters? Just a little aside. The Holy One regarding her lowliness. There's a very specific word that's used there in the Greek. It's called tapionosis. Sounds like tapioca, but it isn't. Tapionosis, it means, it means a real misery. Real, not just kind of like having a bad day. Tapionosis refers to those who live in misery, who, who live in persecution, who live in abject poverty. That's the word that Luke chooses for Miriam to say her prayer. The Lord has looked upon my lowliness, regarded me in my lowliness. It's not in spite of her lowliness. It's because of her lowliness. We'll see that as the prayer, as the prayer develops, that, that God has blessed her who is poor and lowly. She is of no account. She was considered worthy of stoning. And she's in Nazareth of Galilee, uh, among the poorest of the communities in all of Galilee. God has done great things for me. Miriam says that. 
God has done great things for me. Just like Elizabeth has said, so the Lord has done for me. She's acknowledging the grace that God has given to her. And once again, when we pray this, one of the reasons among many that the church gives us to pray this beautiful canticle each day is that we all can own it. God has done great things for me. You can pray that line and have it refer exactly to yourself. Exactly to yourself. God has done great things for me. And all of us can say that. And what comes forth from Miriam is that really deep sense that it's by God's initiative that this takes place in her life. Gabriel started her on that trail. It's by God's initiative that this greatness is happening in your life, as it is in ours. It's always by God's initiative. It's important to remember that Mary had a radical confidence in God. She could not have said freely yes to Gabriel without that radical confidence in God that no matter what happens to her, she's counting on her God to be with her. Radical confidence in God. You know, Elizabeth, uh, or Gertrude, Elizabeth Stein said that to her sister as they were going in the Holocaust to, uh, to their death, encouraged her to have that same radical confidence in God that some good will come from this, that God who is good will bring good from our deaths. Mary had that kind of faith as well. She finds in her God a wellspring of joy and comfort, even in her tapianosi, even in her lowliness and in her poverty. God's mercy to an oppressed people. God's mercy. We're going to say more about that tomorrow night. It is so much richer than forgiveness. I think that's a mistake a lot of people make in thinking about God's mercy. God's mercy for my sin. Or God's mercy for something. Forgiveness for something. It certainly includes that. But God's mercy is just an incredible, rich concept. More about that tomorrow night with the Benedictus. And blessings on Pope Francis for giving us a whole year to concentrate on unpacking the, the richness of that sense of what mercy is all about. And then comes, in that stanza, the great reversal, as Scripture scholars refer to it. It's really important. The great reversal. The lowly are defended by God and the arrogant end up as losers. The great reversal, which went against everything that was part of the history in Judaism. If you were wealthy, if you had cattle, if you had land, if you had sons and daughters, in that order, by the way, you were considered highly in God's favor. If you were among the Tapianosi, those who were poor and miserable, and oppressed, you were poor and miserable and oppressed because you were not in God's favor. 
They extended that to illness and sickness as well. That was the full belief. You remember the man born blind. The question asked to Jesus is, who sinned, him or his parents? Somebody sinned here or God wouldn't have punished them. And Jesus absolutely eschews that approach. It's called the great reversal. And Mary sings about it, that God will bring up the lowly from the dust heap and bring down the, the rulers from their thrones. Jesus will extend that as the major principle in the coming of the reign of God. Her son Jesus will teach this great reversal in his proclamation of the coming of the kingdom. Do you remember what he says to the poorest of the poor? The kingdom of God belongs to you. You own it. The kingdom of God belongs to you. He tells the scribes and the Pharisees that tax collectors and prostitutes will go into the kingdom of God before you. Complete reversal. Those who saw themselves as the cognoscenti, the knowledgeable ones, the powerful ones, the holy ones by their own righteousness, Jesus taught them that they would be brought down from that arrogance. The great reversal. Jesus' ministry was to the last and the least. No one's excluded who will put his or her heart under the influence of God's reign. But it begins with the last and the least. And that's Miriam's song as well. You got to believe she reared her son in that very deep understanding of God's great reversal. It started with the Jewish people. No land, no leader, no nothing. They were, they were refugees from oppressive Egypt in a desert with nothing. It wasn't the powerful that God chose as God's people. It was the Tapianosi right from the beginning. But boy, like so many things, it got distorted. And somehow, illogically, the thought was the wealthy, the rich, the powerful are the favorite of God. Julian of Norwich has this wonderful, great phrase that I'm sure many of you have heard, some may use. Uh, all will be well, all will be well, all manner of thing will be well. That's a wonderful way to look at Mary's song. That's what she's singing here. No matter how bad it is, all will be well, all will be well, all manner of thing will be well. Because God's mercy pledged in covenantal love will make it happen. And when her son Jesus preaches his Beatitudes, you hear them articulated differently by our dear friend, St. Luke. You know, in Matthew's gospel, that's the most familiar iteration of the Beatitudes. In Luke's gospel, it goes, they go like this. There's six, but three positive, three negative. Just give you the positives. Happy are you poor. Happy you who hunger now. Happy you who weep now, but woe to you rich. It's the great reversal all over again. I want to share with you a quote I came across from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Just curious, how many of you are familiar with who he is, Dietrich Bonhoeffer? A handful of folks. 
uh, a wonderful Lutheran theologian, uh, a great martyr, a great martyr in the Holocaust. And why I call him a martyr is this. You know, when the Holocaust uh, really got underway, Bonhoeffer was in New York. He was, he was teaching at Columbia University's Union Theological Seminary. He was safe. He was in New York City. And he chose to return to Germany. And he chose to return because of his people are being sacrificed. He wanted to be with his people. And in one of his letters from prison, he's reflecting about the Magnificat. And here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This is the passionate, surrendered, proud, enthusiastic Mary who speaks out here on behalf of the poor. There are six central verbs in Mary's song that describe what God's going to be all about here, how God approaches things. Listen to these six verbs, how God's going to help Israel. Show strength, scatter, pull down, lift up, fill up, send away. Show strength, scatter, pull down, lift up, fill up, send away. Powerful, powerful words. It's a revolutionary song of salvation. This Magnificat is not some little pious ejaculation somebody prayed in church. This is a song of revolution whose concrete social, economic, political dimensions cannot be denied. Do you realize that in the 1980s, day before yesterday, <laughs> we could have been arrested, all of us could have been arrested if we were in Guatemala doing what we just did and will do one more time this evening, praying Mary's song in public. You could be arrested by the government of Guatemala in the 1980s because they recognized everything that Miriam was talking about there describes how they were oppressing the people of Guatemala. They saw it. They knew it. It's a song of revolution. By the way, some of those generals are only now, I mean right now, being brought to justice from the 80s oppressive stuff going on in Guatemala. Isn't that great? 2,000 years later, Mary's little song would get you arrested by people who recognized just how subversive she was in the best sense of it. I'd like to just take a little left turn for a moment, if I may, and just make a link here. I, I just find myself so grateful, and I don't mean this in a narcissistic way, but in the beginning of my life of service in the church, I was in the seminary, and the pope at that time was John the 23rd, 
whom I love with all my heart. As I'm coming toward some winter years here in my life, wow, Pope Francis shows up. I feel like, like Simeon, now, Lord, you can dismiss your servant. <laughs> what an incredible pope we have. And, and let, me, let me link what he's doing to Mary's Magnificat here, if I may. His voice is the same voice as Mary's. You know, when, when Francis, very early on in his pontificate, was saying things like, we need to be a church of the poor, not a church who doles to the poor, a church that belongs to the poor, that the poor find their home here. He's echoing exactly what Miriam of Nazareth was saying. And not only that, you know when, when he used the little image, people have gotten caught up in, I, I think in, inappropriately, in the cutesy stuff. You know, like the priests and bishops are supposed to have the smell of the sheep on them. You know, but what he's talking about there is linked to that theology of the poor. And, and, and when he says, I love this, that the church should be a field hospital. A field hospital. You know, you go into a field hospital, you know, you've been shot up, you're in a field hospital, the doctor's not going to give you hell for your high cholesterol. <laughs> you're going to get treated for what, what you need. Nobody's going to correct you. They're going to help you. They're going to treat you. They're going to bless you. They're going to comfort you. And if you're dying, you're going to be cared for. A field hospital. That's a very different image of church from a place where you're going to get judged with some kind of rigid application of rules. Francis isn't dismissing the rules in our church. We need them. We're a human community. What he's saying is we're not a church of rules. We're to be a field hospital where people, people can feel welcome to come. I can't tell you how many times over the decades I've been a priest, I've heard people say things to me like, I don't go to church anymore. I felt like a hypocrite because I'm a sinner. Honey, that's why we're there. Every time we celebrate Mass, we celebrate that the Eucharist is given for the forgiveness of sins. It's not a graduation present for, for valedictorians. It's the, the whole purpose of the church is for that sense of just being utterly filled with the joy that Mary had, that God looks on us in our lowliness, not to oppress or judge or dismiss, but to lift us up and to help each other lift our neighbor up. You notice what he's condemned a lot through this whole thing, the Pope? He's condemned clericalism on a regular basis. I love him for that. Clericalism. Clericalism is that insidious cancer in the church that reversed the reversal. It reversed the reversal. Yeah. You know that, that if, 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 if I'm a bishop or a cardinal or a priest or a deacon, that somehow I'm entitled. Pick up my check in the restaurant. You know, 
What, what Francis is talking about is that sense of judgment, that sense of entitlement has been a cancer in the church. And I would go further than that. I'm very familiar with Quebec. I work there still on a regular basis. That province, just Catholicism evaporated in that college. Within a generation and a half, it went from 93% full Catholic churches to 7%. Why? Ask anybody who knows Quebec. Clericalism. The arrogance of the clerics who told people how to vote, who told people, who women who were in domestic violence situations, that they had to go home. People had to be pregnant. There's utter arrogance to co-opt the freedom in which God has established people. I'm making sense here to you. This song of Mary's is so current and so relevant to exactly what we're facing. And I love that the Pope's called us out on that. And just one more little connection there, if I may. Laudato Si. If you haven't looked at it yet, it's on your parish website. It's incredible. That, that encyclical on the environment, on creation, on caring for our home. More than, I, I'd never seen it made this connection before. The Pope talked about the greed that has caused the diminishment of resources has been done on the backs of the poor. And the planet's need to be saved affects first and foremost the Tapianosi, the lowly, the poorest of the poor those poor folks that cut down their forests in Bangladesh and now catch every typhoon that's ever been uh, in the Eastern Sea. It's it, that, that, that real sense. Mary's song is present tense active voice for us about God's way of taking care of those who are in need. Revolutionary song of God's salvation. If I may be so bold, you know, Miriam preceded our Negro spirituals. You know those gorgeous songs that sing of freedom from oppression? Well, Miriam's showed up 2,000 years earlier, but with the same theology and the same confidence in a God who would deliver. So, after all that, who shall be mother of the Messiah? Well, it's quite clear. It will not be some protected queen with a bounteous table and a stable of security agents to keep her safe. It will not be some well-regarded woman of influence. Who shall mother the Messiah? Tapianosi, a woman of no account, a woman of no standing. Mary's always been presented as the woman who can say yes for her fiat, which she said to Gabriel, and praisingly so. Bless her for her generous yes. But in this song, Mary makes her own no, the no of the Holy One, who opposes anything that oppresses the poor, anything that lays the burdens on the shoulders of others without lifting them. Mary's song keeps hope alive. Mary's song is renewed in every generation, and her confidence is, not just for women, but for all, that God's mercy is from age to age, from generation to generation, to count on that wonderful gift of God's mercy. Martin Luther said this, 
Mary sang this song not for herself, but that all of us can sing it after her. It's a summons to build a just and a human world. Can we pray it again? Let's pray it again and see if, see if a word or two will come to your heart that you can take away tonight from Mary, our mother, and Mary, our sister, our sister in the proclamation of the revolution of salvation. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices, God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his handmaid. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For the one who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever.